Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Will Nettleton, pastor of mission and worship at LMPC, and this is a Pillar and Ground confession episode. In our confession episodes, we seek to understand and apply the truths in our Westminster Confession of Faith. And we are beginning this week our study of chapter 6 of the confession, which is titled, Of the Fall of Man, of Sin, and of the Punishment Thereof. If you've been following along with this series through the confession, you may have noticed a sort of logical order to the way that the confession is arranged. They begin in chapter 1 by talking about Holy Scripture, and the divine started there because it was important to think through how do we know what we know about God. And so they started with the fact that God has revealed himself to us, and the primary means by which he has uh, done that is through Scripture. Uh, That is the primary way we know what we know. Uh, about God. And then in chapter 2, they begin to talk about exactly that. What do we know about God based upon what he's revealed to us in Scripture? And you'll recall that we heard there about God's triune nature. I won't rehash uh, all of that. Please, uh, if you haven't caught those episodes, go back. Brian did a wonderful job there. After chapter 2 and chapter 3, they turn from God and his nature to everything outside of God, uh, everything that God has made. But before they get to creation and everything that's come to pass in history, they begin with the fact that Scripture tells us that God had a plan for everything that comes to pass. So chapter 3 was about God's eternal decree. Chapters 4 and 5 were about how God executes that plan through the works of creation and providence. He's made all things, and He preserves and governs all things and all their actions by His perfectly wise and holy will. Even, the divine say, the, the fall of man into sin, even that was a part of God's plan, something that did not fall outside of His providential hand. And that is the topic that chapter 6, what we're looking at today, the fall of man, sin, and the punishment that followed, uh, is... I point all of this out to you simply to note that if you pay close attention to the confession's ordering and argument, there's actually just a beautiful flow to its logic. You'll notice every now and then that each chapter is almost like one of those Russian nesting dolls, where as you open each doll, you find it contains another inside it and another uh, after that one. So as we think about sin uh, and transition to chapter six, perhaps we need to begin somewhere almost too basic, which is the fact that it exists. That something is wrong with the world. Everyone, I think, recognizes this. Something is not right with the world. One of my favorite novelists is is an author by the name of Michael Chabon. And a few years ago, he wrote a piece in the New York Review of Books about the director Wes Anderson and his films. And he opens the essay with some of my favorite writing on just the fact that the world is broken. And and I think it's especially poignant because Chabon is actually not a Christian. He uh, identifies as something of an agnostic Jewish man, grew up Jewish, but would say he's kind of wandered away uh, from that. And so this uh, writing... I think it's actually really surprising to me, uh, a bit of God's common grace, uh, that someone can see this so clearly. So let me just read to you this, the opening of this essay that he wrote. The world is so big, so complicated, so replete with marvels and surprises, that it takes years for most people to begin to notice that it is also irretrievably broken. We call this period of research childhood. There follows a program of renewed inquiry, often involuntary, into the nature and effects of mortality, entropy, heartbreak, violence, failure, cowardice, duplicity, cruelty, and grief. The researcher learns their histories and their bitter lessons by heart. 
Along the way, he or she discovers that the world has been broken for as long as anyone can remember, and struggles to reconcile this fact with the ache of cosmic nostalgia that arises from time to time in the researcher's heart, an intimation of vanished glory, of lost wholeness, a memory of the world unbroken. We call that moment at which this ache first arises adolescence, and the feeling haunts people all their lives. Everyone, sooner or later, gets a thorough schooling in brokenness. I think that is a really powerful uh, way to describe both childhood and adolescence, that childhood is this process of realizing that the world is broken. And adolescence is this moment that you come to where you realize, but it shouldn't be. I have this longing for a world that wasn't broken. Uh, Everyone knows that it is, and everyone longs for it not to be. Which raises this question, how did this happen? How did the world break? There are lots of philosophical attempts to answer that question, but the confession points us back to the story of the scriptures to tell us what happened. So let me read paragraph one of chapter six of the confession, and then we can jump in from there. So 6.1 reads, Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. God was pleased to permit this sin of theirs according to his wise and holy counsel, because his purpose was through it to glorify himself. So paragraph 1 begins with a quick summary of Genesis 3, the first humans, Adam and Eve, tempted by a mysterious talking serpent sinned by breaking the command that God had given Adam. You may eat of all the trees of the garden, except for one. Now, you may wonder, just as a side note, why does the confession assume that this talking serpent is the devil? I mean, I went and read Genesis 3. It doesn't say that that's Satan. Where did they get that? Uh, There's a lot of uh, reflection on this, both in the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition. This is uh, the most ancient interpretation of what's happening in Genesis uh, 3. But there's actually, in the New Testament, an explicit place uh, where we get this reasoning. In Revelation 12, 9, John calls Satan that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. So the confession writes, Satan, this adversary through his subtlety and temptation, seduced Adam and Eve, the first human beings, to sin, and thus brokenness entered the world. It's important to note the confession's language here. Satan may have seduced, but Adam and Eve sinned. So we should say the devil did not make them do it. He may have opened the door for them, but they walked through it of their own free will. This whole scene is actually so significant. I think it's worth pausing for a moment and just thinking about the nature of that first sin. And so I just want to pause and read Genesis 3, 1 through 7 for us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
Notice where the serpent begins here. He begins by trying to twist God's word and sow seeds of doubt in their minds about God and his provision and his law. And so he says about the trees, so you can't eat any of them? And Eve rightly says, no, I mean, we can eat them. But notice how she quotes the law back to the serpent. You shall not eat, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. If you are an observant reader of those first couple of chapters of Genesis, if you go back to chapter 2, you'll notice that that's not actually what God said. God never said anything about them touching the trees. That's actually an editorial addition by either Eve or maybe by Adam when he was first telling her what God had commanded him before she was created. Either way, they've added something on to what God said. God restricted them from eating from one tree, and now they've already exaggerated his commands to make it seem like, oh, we can't even touch it. And you can, so you can begin to pick up here uh, on the seeds of the first sin. There already seems to be some suspicion that God's law is a little extreme, that even in all of his generosity, he's holding out on them, that by holding them back from this one tree, in some way, he's holding them back from them all. And that is precisely what Satan cap- capitalizes on with them. He tells them, you won't die. He's just saying that because he doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding out on you. And Adam and Eve buy that reasoning hook, line, and sinker and eat the forbidden fruit. I find it fascinating that the the first sin was not murder or adultery or something we would think of as a big sin. It was taking a fruit that God had commanded them not to take. It was a simple test. Will you listen to me and trust that I have provided everything you need, that I can be trusted? Or will you take matters into your own hands and decide for yourselves where the boundary markers are? for yourselves what is right and wrong. Adam and Eve chose the latter, and human beings have been doing the same thing ever since. All sin at its heart is a lack of trust in God's wisdom, goodness, and provision, and an attempt to decide for ourselves what right and wrong are. And so that is the Christian answer to how the world broke. Adam and Eve tried to decide for themselves, tried to provide for themselves, grasped and took and eight. But the confession plants a seed of good news even here that they're going to expound on even more in future chapters. God was pleased to permit this sin of theirs according to his wise and holy counsel because his purpose was through it to glorify himself. God permitted sin to enter the world in order that he might glorify himself. He did not make Adam and Eve do this sin. He did not author their sin, but he did permit it according to the mystery of his will for his own glory. If you have forgotten some of what we've talked about already, please go back and listen to the chapters again on providence. We spent a significant amount of time on this, that God has permitted this, yet in such a way where he is not the author of their sin, nor did he violate their will uh, in permitting it to happen. But so why did God do it? Romans 11.32 reminds us that one of the reasons that God permitted the fall is that an aspect of his glory which he desperately wanted to display was his mercy. And so this is why he is permitted, we believe, the fall. At least in part, we don't know the full reasoning of why God has done what he has done. His ways are higher than our ways. From there, the confession then talks about the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. So 6-2 reads, By this sin they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. So as a result of their sin, they were no longer holy, and they could no longer have communion with God. The Genesis account tells how they now fled from God when he came near them. 
They hid from the one who came to seek them out. The other thing that happened is they experienced the punishment that God had originally laid out for them. God had told them that in the day they ate of the tree, they would surely die. Now, what's interesting is, in God's mercy, they don't immediately fall dead. But they have entered the realm of the dying. The process has started. Their death is now inevitable. And so there really is a real sense in which we can say that they died on that day. It was a slow death, yes. But death and decay now entered their bodies and minds. And it was completely inevitable from that moment forward that they would one day return to the dust from which God had formed them. This effects, the effects of this death permeated every aspect of Adam and Eve. The confession says there that they were wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. And so it's here that we find in the confession the doctrine of what theologians call total depravity, that we as sinners are totally depraved. Sin has affected uh, our every part. One common misconception about total depravity is that we mean, just from the language of depravity, that's kind of a heavy word, and total really modifies it in a big way, it makes it sound like we're saying that people, after the fall, are as bad as they could possibly be, totally incapable uh, of avoiding evil at all. But that's not exactly what we mean. That would be utter depravity. When we talk about total depravity, we're not talking about degree, we're talking about extent. Every aspect of the human person is affected soul and body. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Many of us have done this. You've thrown a red sock in with white towels or sheets. Uh, What has happened once you pull those out of the washing machine? The stain is everywhere. Uh, It may not have soaked in as deeply as in the original sock. The red of the sheets may be more of a pink. So it's not as deep as it was in the original, but it is everywhere. And nothing is unaffected. And so the Bible teaches us that it is the same with us. Sin has affected every part. It has polluted every part of us, soul and body. So we can think about these effects in a few different ways. Sin has affected our bodies. I don't think this is hard to prove, that we abuse our bodies through our appetites and our lusts. We abuse the bodies of others by things we do and places we go, both in our our lust and in our anger and in many other ways. So sin's affected our body. But it's also affected our minds. Theologians call this the noetic effects of sin, N-O-E-T-I-C. In Romans 1, Paul argues that the created order proclaims loudly and clearly about God's divine nature and power. But then Paul writes, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Futile in their thinking. Sin has ruined our ability to think perfectly clearly. Again, this doesn't mean that our powers of reason are completely ruined in the fall, but they're now no longer reliable as a final or ultimate authority. We can't trust them. Uh, we, they are broken and sinful. We subdue the truth uh, in unrighteousness. So we are affected by Adam and Eve's fall in every part. Their sin didn't just break the world, it broke all of us too. But the good news of the Bible is clear, even in Genesis 3. The same God who told Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, is the same God who said, where are you? It's fascinating to think about God asking that question of Adam and Eve. Where are you? Did God not know where they were, the omniscient God? Of course he knew. So why did God say, where are you? God was inviting them to come back. He was pursuing them even still. 
And even after their confession, he would provide them a better covering than the pitiful fig leaves that they had sowed for themselves. All of this, of course, in Genesis 3, is pointing forward to the one who will come, the one who's going to perfectly keep the law, the snake crusher himself, whose blood covers for us all, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pillar and Ground. We hope you will join us again soon. Thank you.